Years ago, all of you who live in, near, Newtown went through an unspeakable tragedy. Your children were taken away, your neighbor's children, and in that sense, your own children. In one of America's worst tragedies in our history, certainly the worst ever in Connecticut, each of you endured one of the great sorrows that can ever be experienced in life. These precious lives who ought to have been with you now at the store, the doctor's office, around the corner, riding their bikes in the street, making you put on your brakes, are not with you anymore. That day was a day of infamy throughout Newtown and Sandy Hook and Bethel and Monroe and Danbury and beyond. A voice was heard weeping. Her children are no more. Six adults, 20 little children. The voice of lament spread immediately to where I live up in Hartford and throughout the entire nation, even throughout the entire world. But God was in Newtown that day. He wasn't caught by surprise. He wasn't shocked by the terror as all of us are at recent events in Paris and most significantly were that day. This morning, I wish for each of you to know his great purpose in Newtown that day from the text of sacred scripture, and knowing that, and better than just knowing that, to offer him glory for that awful day that occurred. Had he wished, he could have stopped it. He could have prevented it before it began. That he did not keep it from happening has brought all of you great grief and great sorrow and to your neighbors. And that God did not stop it presents to all of you great challenge to your faith. Can this God be trusted? The loss of one child, whether in the womb or out of the womb, is a great wound to faith of any believer. Losing 20 to sheer evil makes God appear distant, unloving, aloof, uncaring, distant, unconcerned. That's our grief talking within us. Our grief guiding our feelings and then guiding our thinking and implicitly underneath it all charging God with having done great wrong. Because we sorrow. How can we take our grief and make it serve our faith instead of challenge it? Instead of erode it? Instead of go years now with unresolved questions about the God that we come to worship? Wondering if, okay, we can trust him with minor things, but with the really deep things of life, who knows? How can we use our love for these families that lost 
little ones that day and draw them to our Christ as both the one who can truly comfort them if we ourselves are not truly comforted by the Lord. How can we have the confidence to bring them the gospel? Sacred scripture is our divine teacher. It's our heaven-sent teacher. And by understanding the text that we will look at this morning, you will glory, glory greatly in Jesus Christ. You will be moved to worship him even though he was there on that awful day three years ago. You will not despise that day three years ago. You will understand his great magnificent purposes in it and armed with the encouragement to your faith. Be so strengthened to trust him for what he may have in the future for you, for me, for our families, for our communities, the rest of life. Let me just say at the very start here, our grief that we feel is not to be despised. It's the most appropriate reaction to it. God himself acknowledges it, as we'll see in a little bit. There's no need to run and hide from it to try to put on a slap happy face and to move past it, nor is there any need to do that with the tragedy of the past few days. Being a Christian does not make you immune from the griefs of this world. It allows you to stare them down and understand their purpose to the glory of God. Now, faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, who rose from the dead, enables us to look at this tragedy and instead of rewarding us with only unremitting sorrow and unremitting tragedy as we continue to think about what has happened because of what Jesus Christ has done and because of what his purpose was in it all allows us to look beyond and to see something absolutely glorious in the events of three years ago. So what I hope all of us will see this morning is the comfort that God himself brings. Comfort first to these parents, comfort to you that will last you the rest, the days of your life and into the next. To take us to that comfort, I want to use the passage that the Lord has given to us in Matthew chapter 2. Allow me to begin reading in verse 1 and I'll finish in verse 18. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for that is what has been written by the prophet, And you, Bethlehem, the land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Well, then then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem. And said, Go, and search carefully for the child, and when you have found him, report to me, so that I too may come and worship him. 
After hearing the king, they went their way, and the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. Now when they had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for Egypt. He remained there until the death of Herod. And this was to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then, when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. Then what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children. And she refused to be comforted because they were no more. Great, terrible, awful events. Many of you are familiar with these tragic events that occurred 2,000 years ago. The murderer is a madman named Herod. We would say he was insane, who out of jealousy and rage kills dozens, possibly as many as hundreds of little boys ripped out of mother's arms with swords and implements of war destroyed All of it just to get rid of one little boy who he has heard is to be called king of the Jews. Now in these tragedies, in all such tragedies, the parents and everyone else tries to find an answer for why in the murderer and in the insanity. We do the same with the murderer of Newtown's little ones, do we not? And that can help somewhat, but if insanity is all we are allowed to look at, and the insanity is all the answers that we're hoping to find out for, then the tragedy that we have been through, and the tragedy that our beloved friends have been through, never has a chance to escape the downward spiral into despair. What do we know about this murderer, this guy named Herod? He's one of the few men in history with the name Great. He's called Herod the Great. He was a great orator. He was a great warrior. He was a great statesman. He was a great builder. He was a great diplomat. He was greatly insane. His insanity involved the mixture and the bizarre schizophrenic mixture of hatred and love all together at the same time. More than anybody else, he hated the Jews. But more than anybody else, he wanted to be loved by the Jews. 
He wanted their honor. He wanted their respect. He himself, when he was born, was half Jewish. And for some inexplicable reason, he wanted to always be accepted as a full Jew, even though he was never willing to live or have himself brought under the tutelage of what it would take to become a full Jew. Strange. He thought that he had accomplished his goal of becoming a full Jew when in 30 BC he was appointed by the Roman Senate as the king of Judea. It was an office that he held under Rome for the next 34 years until he died. Yet almost immediately upon becoming the king of Judea, Herod defiled the Jewish temple. He set up Roman eagles on tall banners right inside the holy place, thereby defiling it. The Jews, of course, rioted. Herod unleashed his Roman troops, killing many Jews right there in the temple. And so, in repentance, began the process of planning and eventually building what would become the greatest temple of the world, perhaps at that time. The massive temple that you read about in the scriptures, hoping to gain Jewish love and honor and respect. So big, so beautiful was this temple that it was considered one of the wonders of the ancient world. It's Josephus, that ancient historian, who tells us that the rabbis had a saying, if you have not seen the temple, you have not seen anything beautiful. All the while, trying to get these Jews to love him as one of their own, he never seemed to understand that the two were irreconcilable. By accepting the title, the king of the Jews, he offended all Jews. Who understood that as a messianic title? Reserved for the great one prophesied in the Old Testament. And he was anything but. So in taking the title, he offended all Jews. And he deluded himself eventually into megalomania. You know what megalomania is? A psychosis by which a person in their own mind, deems themselves that they are God, that they are so great, that they are so big, and they are so important that they have been invested with the power of life and death. And so, too, three years ago, a megalomaniac took to himself the power of life and death, insanely deluded, self-fed on ego and violent video games, He hated God and man equally. He was a Herod of his own miserable little world until the day he took his hate outside to a kindergarten. Kindergarten, the German word for a a garden of children. An FBI profiler explained that he was trying to kill his mother by killing what his mother loved. She was a kindergarten teacher. He killed all of her kindergarten kids. That sounds almost perverse enough. Almost twisted enough, doesn't it? Almost. But it only goes so deep. He also killed himself. Why? Well, in killing those children, in killing those adults, and ultimately himself, he was trying to kill God. Megalomania. 
kill off the image of God and everything that he possibly could in order to resolve the conflicts of love and hate within him by which he deemed himself ruler, master of life and death. I am the great one, and no one deserves to have the power of life and death but me alone. Megalomaniacs are psychopaths. Psychopaths are megalomaniacs. And they make this world overflow with sorrow, whether they get the title Islamic terrorist or backyard killer. They make the world overflow with sorrow, which is what they want. Herod, strange, strange man, laying on the bed from which he would in a few days die, ordered his troops to gather up all the notable Jewish men of the nation and corral them into the stadium in Jerusalem, which they did, with orders that upon his death they slaughter all these Jewish men. Why? So that every single person in Israel would mourn and weep and cry over the violence of the crime done against those they loved because Herod knew no one would cry for him. And so because he knew that, he therefore demanded that the nation would cry at his death. And die he did just a few days later. But his soldiers refused to carry out the order of the now dead man. Bizarre. So what comfort, what answers do we get by looking at the insanity of the murderer? How does that help when we look at megalomaniac murderers? In fact, there's no comfort there. There's some answers, there's some help, there's some rationale. But if we aren't careful by looking too much at the insanity of the murderer, the murderer begins to look more powerful than God. God wasn't there. Only the insane murderer was there. That's the power of grief to incite unbelief in us. The sorrow builds. It doesn't get resolved. It turns into unbelief. I can't ultimately trust God. God is not trustworthy. Now, there is one thing to learn from looking at such insanity, and it's this. In Herod and in the murderer of Newtown's innocent children, we see the invisible hand of Satan, the one Jesus spoke of, who comes to kill and destroy, who possesses a malignancy against you and all you love in this world as a regenerate man or woman, who hates it so violently that he will do whatever he is allowed to do in order to destroy and take away all happiness, all comfort in the Lord, all joy, all peace, all thankfulness, all gratitude. Because there is a Satan, there must be sorrow in this world. Same day that all those people were killed in Paris, 147 people were killed in northern Africa by a group called Islamic Youth. Because there is a Satan in this world, these things will continue. 
So what is God's response to all of this? Listen, what is God's response to all of this? It's overwhelming grace. It's overwhelming grace. Let's take a look at that grace by going back to this time of sorrow here, what we call historically the slaughter of the innocents here. As you know, Herod gets visited by some Persian kingmakers whom we call the Magi. But look at verse 2. They tell him the exact wrong thing. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Boy, that you don't want to tell Herod. In his mind, he's the only king of the Jews there ever can be. And so that incites his jealousy. Meanwhile, the angel comes and tells Joseph, Jesus' earthly father, during the dream to flee to Egypt, which he does. Why? Because he says very specifically at the end of verse 13, Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. That's more than just kill. Destroy him. That means he's describing Herod's intent to keep anyone else from ever making such a claim as to be king of the Jews. Then look at verse 16. He sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its vicinity from two years old and under. Yes, by this time, by this time, Jesus is two years old or a little bit under. But think about those words in verse 16. Think about that for a minute. All the male children, two years old and under. That is a beautiful age of life. All of those little boys, so precious, laughing, bouncing, can hardly say a word. All they do is give love back to mom and dad. Never give a cause for any kind of evil. Oh, they're so precious. They're all so sweet. Moms are continually watching out for them 24-7. You can't let a child like that have too much time by themselves. Otherwise, they will get in trouble, won't they? And they're constantly under the watch care of their moms and they're Older sisters and brothers and dads and grandparents and all those around. And they're greatly beloved, greatly hugged, greatly kissed, greatly desired, treasured, esteemed. Great hopes are had for those children. Their little personalities are looked at and evaluated. And their little bodies and how much of it is moms and how much of it is dads. They're loved, greatly loved. Now, this was a lot of children here. I want you to notice, please, in verse 16, that these children were not just those from Bethlehem, but all its vicinity. Historians disagree over how many children were killed that day. My own estimate is between 40 and 80. It could have been a little less. could have been a little more. But what's worse is that Herod gets away with it. He never gets arrested. He never gets caught. No one ever calls for an investigation. No one ever can give the parents any human relief whatsoever. There's no way to answer to a king in this day. He has this megalomaniac power and is not even afraid to use it. 
Which is why, if you would please, drop down to verse 18. Why it says that she refused to be comforted. There could be not even the false comfort of hoping that Herod would commit suicide. Miserable comfort, but some small comfort, I guess, right? Very small. No. He lived on, carried out his orders, ate nice food, wore nice clothes, had troops attend him, people do his bidding. He went on in the strength of the king of Judea. All these precious little babies were dead and had to be buried under an ocean of parental tears. If you look at verse 18, that is a quote from the Old Testament, the book of Jeremiah particularly. Jeremiah had been raised up by God 600 years earlier than when Matthew quotes this and when Jesus was born. Jeremiah is raised up to predict the loss of the children during Herod's reign. He predicts this awful events, and the way that he does it is emotionally. This is not a news report in which the glib reporter announcing the news is about to move on within 30 seconds time to a happy story and show that they themselves do not even absorb the grief of what is being said. This is deeply emotional. But I'll tell you, you would think if you wanted to really communicate the emotional tragedy of children being killed, you would quote the parents who suffer the most. But that's not what happens. If emotion was all the goal that, that was a part of this text, it was only to make this situation appear ultra-emotional, then you would use the words of the parents. But this is not the parents being quoted here. If it was, it would say, we cried and we cried and we cried. But instead, this is being spoken by someone who was there. This someone, who is he? It isn't anyone who himself is weeping. Everyone else was weeping. You know the Middle Eastern weeping, the death wail, where they, they move the tongue and they do the la-la-la-la, and it just echoes around? That's what they're talking about, the Middle Eastern death wail. Everyone would have been doing it. Mothers, fathers, grandparents, neighbors, and because it was a significant and important part of the culture there, please don't dismiss this, they had professional wailers, professional people who came and cried the Middle Eastern death wail as a way to help people emotionally let out what they were suffering. Please don't despise it. It's a, not a part of our culture, but it's an important part of theirs. But look what Jeremiah does in verse 18. Look at the first words. A voice. He collects all the crying as a singular voice. Who but God could hear all the weeping and collect it as one? People who would cry for the rest of their lives. The rest of their lives, their pillows would be stained with tears. Deep into the night, wishing for that child to be back, to hug one more time. 
the kind of crying, the kind of sorrow that comes in waves that's uncontrollable. You don't control it. And yet, God hears it all and encompasses all of it as one. A voice. Who but God can take the weeping of an entire region and collect it into one? All who weep, the high and the low, and the children and the grown-ups, and the mothers and the fathers. The town, it spreads into the city, it spreads to the country. Who can hear all of that and collect it as one but God? God was in Bethlehem that day, just as he was in Newtown three years ago. He heard your weeping. Let's go back to this passage in Jeremiah together, shall we? Maybe hold your finger here or put something in here because we'll come back. But if you would, go over to Jeremiah 31 with me quickly. I want to look at the extended passage just a little bit with you. I want you to see that this text that Matthew uses has its own context originally that Matthew is referring to back in the original prophecy 600 years prior to the time that Matthew quoted it. I'd like you to join me in Jeremiah 31, 15. And here you'll see it. Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation. (coughs) Excuse me. A voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. God collects all the voices together. And then he mentions in verse 15, Ramah. Ramah is a city a number of miles north of Jerusalem, while Bethlehem is a number of miles south of Jerusalem. By telling you that the voice was heard in Ramah, it tells you that the crying that went on from the slaughter of the innocents down in Bethlehem and all of its environments traveled well north through Jerusalem, well north all the way to the city of Ramah. Tells you that the entire area, a large area with many, many people, was entirely weeping after what had happened. It's a large area, in other words, which is why I believe that there was a larger slaughter than just in a small territory. Let's move on together, please, in verse 16. This is what God says about the tragedy. You ready? Thus says the Lord, restrain your voice from weeping. And your eyes from tears, for your work will be rewarded, declares the Lord, and they will return from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children will return to their own territory. God hears all the weeping. He doesn't despise it. And yet, notice how strange it is in verse 16, Restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears. Is this the anti-emotion God? Who despises weeping and crying? No. Jesus goes to the tomb of Lazarus and weeps, not because Lazarus is dead. He weeps because he joins everybody there in the sorrow over death. God's not opposed to weeping. Jesus wept. He felt our grief. He knows what we go through. Fully human. God isn't opposed to grieving. 
So why did God not want these people weeping over the slaughtered innocents whom Herod killed? Because, he says, look in the middle of verse 16, your work will be rewarded. What work? Good works? Being a good person from then on in? No. The work of faith. The trusting of God with the loss of an innocent child. The work of faith. The trusting of God with the life of an innocent child. He takes something so precious to your own heart that you wish, oh, you wish it could have been me instead of my child. But no, God takes the child. And the work that will be rewarded is the work of faith and trusting in God about what he has done through that. So what is the reward then that, that he speaks of in here? Well, he says specifically at the end of verse 16, look there again. They will return from the land of the enemy. Now this was initially fulfilled in the exiles returning back from, the, from Babylon. But remember Matthew uses this passage 600 years later to bring perspective to the situation that occurred in Bethlehem. And, and so it goes beyond the initial fulfillment of the exiles coming back from Babylon. And now it has to mean that when your children will return, as he's promising here, from the land of the enemy, that the enemy, the final enemy is death, and that the children will be returned from the land of death. Where? Go back to verse 17 now with me. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children will return to their own territory. Your children will return to Israel. Your children will return in resurrection glory is the only way this passage can be fulfilled. Your dead little boys shall return to this region in resurrection is what God is saying through Jeremiah. This requires that all those little baby boys killed by Herod went to be with the Lord on that awful day. And when the day of resurrection comes, they will, guaranteed, be among the eternally glorified. This is the work of verse 16 that God says will be rewarded. If the parents themselves will trust God, they too will be resurrected with their children and be back in the land, and have their children back to hug, to hold, without any threat, without any sorrow, even on the horizon, ever. But will these parents do it? They're so grieving. They're so sad. They've lost their child. Can they look at God? and trust him for his promises about resurrection, what they've never seen with their physical eyes, but have only heard with their physical ears, can they trust in God that at the end he will make this good? Or will their grief overwhelm and make it impossible for them to trust God, that God is this good, 
God is really this powerful. God truly intended it all for this purpose, to raise these children eternally and to have their parents join them eternally. Will these parents trust in the Lord and with the promises in his holy word, in sacred scripture, the very ones that Matthew has drawn out so that we who enter into these tragedies and grieve alongside may trust in them also? Or will these parents spend the rest of their lives back in Bethlehem looking forlornly at Herod or looking forlornly in Newtown at the murderer of their children for the rest of their lives? If they look to the Lord, that leads to resurrection. If they look to the insanity, it leads to misery and grief and alcoholism and bitterness and eternal separation from the child that they lost when they were oh so young. This is the promise of Jeremiah 31, beloved. He'll be resurrected. He'll be resurrected. And in verse 16, your work will be rewarded, the work of faith. So let's go back now and let's go back to Matthew 2 where we'll finish it off together. Matthew 2, 18. You know, all the women who lost these little boys, they're to be completely pitied. According to Matthew 2, 18. Refuse to be comforted because their children are no more. <laughs> but God has a plan for them. A comfort of resurrection. And so the grief is great. And as it appears to them, they will be no more. But you know better. I want to close as we have discussed the comfort of the resurrection I want to close with a word to you parents and to you grandparents. There is a comfort greater than the earthly comfort of hugging that little one in bed as they're about to go to sleep, tucking them in, hugging them, sharing butterfly kisses or special words that become a routine and, and mean so much to both of you. And it's the comfort that is applied here this morning to Newtown that 20 little children barely old enough to even tie their own little shoes today now behold the face of God in heaven they immediately entered into the presence of the almighty they were delivered from all evil forevermore. This is the blessed inheritance of the righteous that belongs to them for Jesus' sake. Such children taken away from this world while yet so young and by such insanity pass out of this world without ever knowing the awful burden of sin, which is manifested in two ways by unbelief that's invisible inside and by acts of sin that are committed outside and are visible. Such little ones have no natural capacity to live out such sin, for they don't even really get sin yet. We teach it to them in Sunday school and they don't know. They're too little. They don't have the capacity yet. 
But they've had all that is necessary occur for them by Jesus Christ to accomplish their full salvation. It was all done by Jesus Christ, who in his baptism by John the Baptist repented on their behalf, though he himself had no sin to repent of. Who on the cross bore their childish misdeeds and transgressions, and who cried out on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And who in his resurrection presents them to the Father as his own, as it says in Hebrews 2.13, here I am and the children whom God has given me. Resurrection. Resurrection for the children guaranteed. They are now in the presence of God and shall in the future receive resurrection bodies. And now you and I have a message of love and comfort to bring to Newtown's mothers who have lost so much. To the fathers of Newtown, we have the same message, and it is this. Work the work of faith. Work the work of faith. And trust your child to God's promise in the gospel. See in the gospel what God most willingly gave up. Where scripture says he who did not spare his own son yet delivered him over for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? What a parent is most unwilling to give up is the love of their heart, their child. God most willingly gave up his own holy and perfect son. We have a message to give to them, to work the work of faith, that they will be resurrected, those children, by the work of Jesus Christ. It's guaranteed in the prophecy of Scripture. It's stronger than death. It outlasts life on this earth. It is eternal, and it is guaranteed by the very word of Almighty God himself. And then this to the parents, you look to God yourself. You look at what God has now done and promised for your children, and now you look at what God has done for you in the gospel. He gave his own son so that you may be completely forgiven and so that you may be completely granted all the promises of God in Christ, for in him they are all yes and amen. And thereby, by you trusting in Jesus Christ and what God did through him on the cross, what the scriptures say he did, may be guaranteed a reunion with every child and thereby be eternally restored to an eternity of togetherness, of hugs, of comfort. Look at what God did for your child. Now look for what God may do for you. You know, before there were megalomaniacs wielding guns, there were megalomaniacs wielding knives. And before there were megalomaniacs wielding knives, there were megalomaniacs wielding bows and arrows. And before there were megalomaniacs wielding bows and arrows, there were megalomaniacs wielding rocks. Like Cain, who slew his brother Abel because his deeds were righteous. All the way from the beginning, this has been the sorrow that has been inflicted upon humanity is the unrighteous, untimely, awful sorrow of death. But our message in the gospel of Jesus Christ is a guaranteed message of life, of resurrection, of the forgiveness of sin. 
And so we tell you, parents of Newtown, and we tell ourselves, beloved of Newtown Bible Church, if you want to hold your baby again in resurrection forevermore and trust her or him to God's own promises concerning her or him, and yourself to God's mercy and God's promise in the gospel. Here, beloved Newtown parents, the promise made to Bethlehem's parents, your children are not no more. They live forever. Would you pray with me? Almighty God, God who raised Jesus from the dead, manifested him alive before many witnesses, thereby proving beyond any reasonable doubt that you indeed are the God of all of life, owner of life and death, the ruler who takes care of it all, who takes our children when they die at such an untimely age and draws them instantly into your eternal presence. The great God who does such great things draw our beloved Newtown parents to thee. And our souls to thee. May we glory in thee that you do such great and wonderful things through such awful human tragedies and that you extend out the great bidding of salvation. I pray that your Holy Spirit would draw people to yourself, those who might trust in you, in your great promise of the gospel, and might find the great comfort and the great reunion promised by you. We bless you, almighty and dearest God. In your son Jesus' name, amen.